Let's bow our heads in prayer. Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand and understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do through Christ our Lord. Amen. Good morning, church. My name is John Cannell. Chris and I came to this church 35 years ago with our sons, John and Brian. And we've served at Cornerstone as opportunities have presented themselves. We helped plant Redemption Hill Church. We're active in Sunday school and community groups. One year, we led the youth group. We've been on a couple of mission trips and challenge conferences with them. Chris was on the Titus II team, and she was uh, in charge of nurseries for seven years. I served as an elder for a dozen years or so, church chairman for six years, and now I'm deacon for property. Back in April, Pastor Cho asked if I would preach at Cornerstone during the transition. I was bursting with the news. I mentioned it to Nicole, my daughter-in-law. Oh, when are you preaching, she says. June 19th. Isn't that Father's Day? No, no, wait, no. What, Father's Day? Are you sure? Uh, This was a problem. Let me illustrate the Father's Day problem with a story. The children wanted a hamster, and they made all the usual promises that they would take care of it, keep the cage clean, feed it. So mom got them one. They named it Danny. Two months later, mom found herself the only one cleaning the cage and feeding Danny. Fed up, she found a new home for it. The children took the news pretty well. One of them said, well, he's been with us a long time. We'll miss him. Yes, Bob says, but I'm the only one taking care of him. I say he goes. Another child says, well, maybe if he wouldn't eat so much and wasn't so messy, he could stay. (laughs) Mom was firm. Nope. It's time to take Danny to his new home. Go get his cage. Immediately, the kids started crying. Danny, they said, we thought you said daddy. Isn't that how fathers are portrayed today? Messy and eat too much? I mean, look at any sitcom on TV. You see an inept, oblivious, irrelevant kind of a distraction of a father. Or maybe you see a controlling, demanding drill master looking for glory through the lives of his children. Often we're reminded of the father that's not there at all. The father who abandons his wife and children. And then worse, sometimes fathers are shown to be flat-out abusive. Check out TV commercials we see every day. Dad can't figure out how to take care of the kids, cook a meal, do the laundry, wash the dishes. Not without mom. It seems like dads are an expendable part of the family. I think that's a shame. Fathers deserve more credit, more respect, more honor. But if we turn to the Bible and look at the Old Testament, the picture of fatherhood doesn't improve. In fact, it gets a lot worse. Noah got drunk and passed out naked in front of his sons. Abraham sent his oldest son Ishmael out to the desert to die. Lot fathered a son with each of his two daughters. Eli and Samuel raised worthless, unbelieving sons who became corrupt priests and judges, 
misused their positions for personal gain. Japheth sacrificed his daughter after they won the battle against the Ammonites. And King David, David failed to discipline his sons. And as a result, Absalom murdered his brother Amnon and then tried to overthrow King David's throne. I'm an electronic library of over 4,500 biblical books, and I searched through this library for Father's Day preaching themes based on the Old Testament. One idea was about that passage in Ezekiel where Ezekiel is told to man the gap in the wall. Kind of the idea would be for fathers to man up, hold their ground, honor God, intercede for their families. But I thought that was a little bit of a stretch. Another idea featured Hezekiah. You remember Hezekiah. He became king and he lamented the neglected condition of the house of God. He set about to put things right. He destroyed the high places. He restored the temple. His thought was to take this scenario and preach something about fathers putting their houses in order. But it seems too contrived. I still had hopes for an Old Testament Father's Day sermon, though. So we come to the last two verses in the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. One commentator points out that there's a connection here between this prophetic curse at the end of the Old Testament and a similar curse at the end of the book of Revelations, at the end of the Bible in chapter 22 of Revelation. The difference is, though, that grace has the last word at the end of Revelation. Today's Father's Day. I want to spend my time talking about the first half of Malachi 4.6. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. An Old Testament scholar named Arthur Hill gives me permission to do this. He says... Although the reconciliation of family discord is not the focus of the passage in context, that message is certainly relevant given the breakdown of the nuclear family in Western society. What better word for a society disintegrating slowly due to its own self-absorption than to turn to God and to one another? This passage resonates with me for two reasons. The first reason comes with a story. On Father's Day, 1973, I came out of the bedroom, headed to the kitchen for coffee. I noticed a new leather recliner in the living room. Uh, what's this, Chris? It's your Father's Day present, but I'm not a father. Not yet, she grinned. <laughs> that changed everything. I am a father. I've raised two wonderful sons, John and Brian. In a turn, I've watched them raise up superb sons and daughters. And over the years, I've become something of a father figure to other young men, men who have looked to me for advice, accountability, and guidance. The second reason this passage resonates is that my dad was part of my life. (laughs) There we go. for almost 70 years. We had our ups and downs, like many sons, 
do with her fathers. But for the last 20 years, we were the best of friends. I became the one he could talk, about, talk to about things in his life. And he became a source of wisdom and advice that I had neglected for years. There are many fathers here today. There are many parents here today. And I'm speaking directly to each of you in your role as parents. I want to explore with you what it might look like as you turn your hearts to your children. And while we may not all be parents, we all had parents. Has your heart turned towards your parents? Or if they're no longer in your life, has your heart turned toward the memory of your parents? So we have a key passage placed at the very end of the Old Testament, one that is called out in the Gospels and matched in Revelation, kind of like bookends for the New Testament. The passage speaks of Elijah, the messenger who will prepare the way for the Messiah. The passage speaks of one whose preaching will turn hearts of fathers to their children. The passage speaks of the hearts of children turning to their fathers. And how exciting is it that this is the very last verse of the New Testament? That can't be an accident. That has to mean something. I want to understand what that means at street level. A few weeks ago, you remember Dave Hazelton preached on the theme of church's family. He pointed out that God was referred to as Father over 250 times in the New Testament. In the New Testament, prayers are addressed to God as the Father. That's not true in the Old Testament anywhere. Jesus taught us that. And the prayers in the New Testament are addressed to God, our Father. We have to accept the fact that something significant changed in our treatment and understanding of fathers between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Fathers are honored and respected in the New Testament. Malachi's prophecy is being fulfilled in the New Testament. Well, we know what changed, don't we? Jesus. Jesus changed everything. He fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus has broken the curse of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Elijah, in the person of John the Baptist, has come bringing a message that turns the hearts of fathers and sons, parents, and children. Jesus himself tells us that Elijah, this prophecy is John the Baptist in Matthew 9, 13. But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done everything to him they wished, just as it is written about him. John the Baptist confirmed that he was not the Messiah, but the one who prepares the way for Jesus. In his role as the messenger that most interests this morning, this ties the last verse of the Old Testament and the dramatic change of heart we see in the New Testament concerning relations between fathers and sons, parents and children. By verifying Jesus' identity as the Messiah, John the Baptist fulfilled Elijah's role as one who turns hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers. Of course, ultimately, it's Jesus who changed hearts. But John the Baptist was a vital part of Jesus' ministry. The prophecy and promise of the last verse in the Old Testament is now active and it's vitalized. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The New Testament makes this change of heart obvious in its portrayal of fathers. 
Matthew refers to Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, as a righteous man. And we don't know much about Joseph, but we do know that he treated Mary kindly. Joseph was in a bad spot. He was supposed to divorce Mary for her uh, supposed uh, adultery. If he refused to expose her, everybody would assume he was the father of the child, and therefore his reputation as, of righteousness would come into question. But he was obedient to God. He responded to, as God commanded in the dream. In addition, he equipped Jesus with a carpentry trade, and he raised Jesus in the Jewish traditions and spiritual observations. He trusted God. He took the long trek to Egypt to protect Jesus from Herod's soldiers. And he acted in faith, never knowing what the details of what he was supposed to do. Joseph is a great example of a New Testament father. When Jesus speaks of fathers, he assumed them to be good and not evil. His use of fathers in his parable put them in a good light. The parable of the prodigal son is an obvious example of an absolutely wonderful father who is greatly disrespected by his youngest son. But this New Testament father set aside his dignity and pride, and he ran to meet the disgraced son with open arms. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for not honoring their mothers and fathers in the incident where the Pharisees declared their possessions to be Corban and not available to help support their parents. And finally, Jesus uses another illustration based on the underlying assumption that fathers would always do good for their children. In Matthew 7, 9 to 10, he says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Jesus serves as a shining example, not only for parents, but to all of us in four ways. Jesus welcomes children. In the first century, children had little to no rights. They often seemed as a nuisance and they were tolerated, but not, not welcomed. In Mark's gospel, Jesus spoke out against those who pushed children to the side while drawing them near to himself. Let the little children come to me, do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Number two, Jesus empowered children. In John chapter 6, Jesus performs one of his most famous miracles, feeding 5,000 hungry people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. Andrew spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Rather than making a lunch suddenly appear out of thin air, which he could do, Jesus chose to bless and multiply the existing meager lunch of this young boy. Jesus saw the potential of a child when perhaps no one else did. Thousands of people were blessed as a result. Now I'm sure you know how tempting it is when you see your child struggle with a, struggle with a chore or school assignment to step in and do it yourself. I can't tell you how many times I had to watch one of my sons slowly wash the dishes. I mean, I could have done it in a couple of minutes, right? But had I jumped in, I would have taken something away from them. Now, I'm proud of John and Brian for many things. But one of the best things about them is that they finish what they start. 
This may not be a direct result of struggling through dishwashing, but by allowing them to figure it out and finish the job, I think they may have been better prepared for adulthood. It's a fine line between supporting, teaching, and encouraging a child through a challenging task than doing it for them. Don't rob your children of the empowerment you can give them by letting them succeed on their own, or mostly on their own. Number three, Jesus served children. During his earthly ministry, Jesus raised just three people from the dead. One was the son of the widow of Nain. Another was Lazarus, a close friend. The third was the daughter of Jairus, a synagogue official in Jerusalem. She was just 12 years old. She fell ill and eventually died. Now, child mortality rates in the first century were much higher. The death of a girl her age wouldn't have been very uncommon. But moved with compassion, Jesus brought her back to life. He took her hand. He said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned. And once she stood up, then Jesus told, her to, told them to give her something to eat. This is one of Jesus' most powerful miracles. He demonstrates that children are as worthy of being served as his dear personal friends. Now, you and I don't routinely raise people from the dead, but we do expend time, energy, and resources on behalf of children. Church, think of the hours you have spent caring for your children in nursery, Sunday school. Think of the full of fundraisers you've supported for the children's home in the Jumani. Think of the marches you've supported for Assist Crisis Pregnancy Center. Think of the support for Good News Clubs, Young Lives. We are getting this right. We are serving children, and it shows. Cornerstone cares about children. Finally, Jesus commended children. Children show such humble dependence that Jesus commissions each one of us to follow a similar example. He tells his disciples in Matthew, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So commend your children. Consider how you speak of your children to others. Consider what they overhear you saying about them. Consider whether they might have something worth imitating. It would be impossible for me to preach a Father's Day sermon and not mention Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, I remember very clearly the last time Chris quoted this passage to me. I think the first 15 million times have faded into kind of a cloud of memory. But the last time we were driving to church in Monterey, California, the boys were in their early teens. I was teasing them or doing something obnoxious I thought was hilarious. But I don't think they found it funny because they weren't laughing. And Chris had to quote Ephesians 6.4 to me. I guess she finally got through because after that, I began to respect my sons more as citizens in the family and less as just little people with limited rights. But before I leave Ephesians 6.4, let me read it again. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. 
This involves more than just bringing them to Sunday school, although it certainly includes that. Lead your family in prayer at dinner time. Read a Bible story before bed. Teach your children about God. Make God an integral part of your family life. Church, let us ask God that his spirit would lead us to turn our hearts towards our children as we raise them in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now let's spend the next couple of minutes reflecting on what might be involved in the hearts of children turning to their fathers. I'm not just talking about young people under the age of 18 here. Certainly they're included, but I believe children we're talking about here are all those who have or have had parents. That's pretty much everybody. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. Sound familiar? Fifth commandment. It's the very epitome of hearts turning to parents. Honoring your father and mother is exactly the same thing. This honor due to parents has two components, positive and negative. Let's get negative out of the way first. Some of us have bad dads or bad moms. Many of the rest of us have experienced parental mistakes that resulted in consequences that still affect our lives. Some of us might have disturbing stories that are best dealt with by a pastor, a Christian counselor, or even a therapist. But in general, the question is, how are we to honor our less than perfect parents? First off, honor is not just obeying your parents no matter what. If your parents encourage you to do something that is illegal or harmful to someone else, you can still honor them and not follow their advice. Talk kindly to your parents. Treat them with respect, even if you don't agree with them. If you get angry or hurt, maybe you should follow this proverb. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. It may not seem fair to act more mature than your parents, but you're doing the right thing. Forgive your parents. Parents make mistakes. You didn't come with an instruction manual. Cut them some slack. If they have been abusive or manipulative, it might take longer, be more difficult to forgive. True forgiveness is tough to accomplish. You might need help, a mentor perhaps. My first step in forgiving is to recognize unforgiveness as a sin. My process of repeated confession and repentance allows God to produce forgiveness in me. Unforgiveness eats away at you and creates a root of bitterness that's dangerous to the soul. Confess unforgiveness as sin. Repent. Repeat as necessary. In some cases, it's going to take a lot of repetition. It's time to get personal. My father's name was John C. Cannell, but he was called Jack all his life. I'm John C. Cannell, Jr. My oldest son is John E. Cannell. His middle initial is in honor of Chris's dad. My grandson, Jack, is named for his great-grandfather. There's an interesting story here. My father had always hoped for a great-grandson would be named after him. And when Jack was born, John called my dad and said, Granddad, we named our son after you. Yeah, we're calling him Granddad. 
My dad was abandoned by his father at age two. He was raised by my grandmother, who was a seamstress in a department store and a part-time babysitter. When school was out in the summer, my dad lived with his aunt and uncle in Baltimore. He graduated from high school at 17 with four D's and an F and left immediately to go serve in the Marine Corps in World War II. After the war, he came back, and because nobody thought he would make a good husband, he secretly eloped with my mom. I was born nine months and 12 days later. My father was 19 years old when I was born. He worked as a common laborer, and we lived with my grandmother for the first three or four years of my life. Let me say up front, my dad made mistakes as a father. He was too strict. I was mostly uneasy around him until I was 16 or so. But dad always worked hard to provide for mom and us four children. We never doubted his love for us or his commitment to the kids having a better life start than he had. Fast forward 50 years. We had gathered to honor my parents with an 80th birthday party. Mom and dad were born nine days apart, so joint birthday parties were pretty easy. After the party, all of us were sitting around. Siblings were taking turns telling funny stories about dad. You know the game. Oh, remember the time dad such and such. Oh, can you believe that dad actually did thus and so? Well, the harder we laughed, the quieter dad got. Until that moment, it had never once occurred to me that dad knew he had made mistakes and was sorry for them, but he just didn't know what to do about them now, how to fix them, what to say about them in the present. I tell you, it broke my heart to see his pain. He did the best he knew how, and here we were 50 years later making fun of him. I did not honor my father that day. You want funny dad stories? I don't have any, not anymore. So much for the negative side of honoring our parents. On the positive side, we get some excellent advice from the internet. Let your folks know you understand what they've done for you. A note here, a word of thanks there, a card, a phone call, a hug. Number two, listen to their stories. The act of listening is going to affirm and encourage your parents. And when you do it, you provide the gift of your presence. Number three, tell them your stories. A surprising number of people with adult children don't know much about what's going on in their children's lives. Get on the phone, take them out to dinner, visit for coffee, whatever it takes. Be excited about their lives. Who cares if you don't get the finer nuances of homeowner association politics? So what if your mom's book club book fails to excite you? Show some enthusiasm about what they're up to. And finally, try not to trample over your parents' values. Politics, acceptable language, stances on drinking, smoking, movie standards, all things you may disagree with. It's okay to differ with mom and dad on a variety of issues. The point is, honor your parents along the way. Sometimes that means watching what you say and opting not to engage in the political fights if you already know you're never going to see eye to eye. Church, consider how your hearts are inclined when you think of your parents. Are your hearts turned toward them? 
Pray that God would give you love, compassion, forgiveness, and patience with your parents or with their memory. So far, we've been considering how our hearts have turned towards our children and how our hearts have turned towards our parents. Now, as we wrap up, we come to the good part. We can pause in our thinking about our earthly families and reflect for a moment on what it means on Father's Day to have God as our Father. One of the most dramatic scenes in the entire Bible is in Matthew 3, after John baptizes Jesus. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God states his love for Jesus. This is my beloved Son. And he expresses overwhelming parental pride when he says, with whom I am well pleased. John 1.12 clearly tells us that through Jesus, we too have become children of God. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Our status is further confirmed in 1 John 3.1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Galatians 4, 6, and 7, we began to see what this means in our lives. Because you are his sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. The ramifications of this are stunning. It breaks my mind to think that God has brought us into his family and given us status as heirs to his kingdom. Because of the work Jesus did on the cross, God sees us in a new way. God sees us as his handiwork, his friend, his chosen one's holy and beloved child. God counts us as righteous, as dead to sin, as holy, as blameless. Temple of the Holy Spirit. God sees us as new creation, justified, redeemed, sanctified, even glorified. God has sealed us with his Holy Spirit to guarantee our inheritance until we take possession of it in eternity. Doesn't that blow your mind? Now, follow me here. I don't want to mess this up. This is important. When God sees you as you are right here, right now, this morning, he can say, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. He can say that exactly the same thing he said of Jesus because when he sees you, he sees Jesus. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, God loves you, forgives you. He's adopted you into his family. This should rock your world. You are free from slavery to sin. You are free to not sin. You are free from fear of failure. 
You are free from fear of disappointing God. You have a father who loves spending time with you. You have a father who loves no, whose love knows no bounds. You have a father who has a plan for you to strengthen you, to teach you, to develop you, to give you a life of meaning and purpose. The mental image I have for this concept of being God's child is so powerful and so overwhelming, it sometimes just takes over myself. Now, this is not my vision of heaven. This is my vision of now. I imagine I've entered the throne room filled with elegantly dressed people, all focusing their attention and devotion to the king on the throne. I look at these noble, holy, righteous people worshiping the king, and it produces sadness and despair, maybe anger and jealousy in me. I'm dressed in torn cutoffs, flip-flops, a scrap of unwashed, smelly undershirt. I'm filthy. The stench radiating off my body is offensive to anyone near me. There's sores all over my body. I'm full of disease and corruption. I am hideous in appearance. You would cry if you saw me. But worse than that's my attitude. I'm like a rebellious two-year-old full of wickedness, full of the devil. Perhaps I go over and wipe my face on somebody's robe, staining it with snot, drool, dirt. Maybe I punch another person in the stomach or kick an elder in the shins. I am acting out. I start singing childish lyrics, dancing around. You get the picture. I'm a total disgrace. I'm an embarrassment to anyone near me. I am repulsive. If you were there, you'd want to smack me or have me thrown out. I don't belong here. And then the king gets up and he walks over and he picks me up. He said, look at this. This is my son. Isn't he perfect? Isn't he wonderful? This is my beloved son. I'm so proud of him. He's the best. He's the best. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I look down. I'm clean. I'm healed. I'm perfect. My clothes are pure white. I'm fully grown. I'm mature in Christ. My attitude is now that of Christ. I am seeing myself now as God sees me. God sees me through Jesus as perfect, holy, wonderful, beautiful, pure. I am good enough. I am a slave to no one. I'm fearless. I am a child of God. Can you see it? Can you see your perfection, your beauty, your holiness? holy, wonderful, pure. Can you hear God say to you, this is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased? Can you just for a moment see yourself, not as you think you are, but as God sees you, as you truly are, holy, perfect, pure, child of God, co-heir with Christ? This is my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. Abba, Father, we praise you that we're your children. We praise you that each one of us can say, I am a child of God. I am a beloved child of God. Amen. If you cannot, right now, say that you're a child of God, then I beg you, I 
beg you, please, after the worship service, go back in the back of the narthex to the prayer room and talk to me. Talk to an elder. We want to show you how to become a child of God. Take advantage of this moment today to become one who has accepted God's offer to be adopted in his family. Become a child of God this morning. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, creator of heaven and earth, through your son, Jesus Christ, you have revealed yourself as a heavenly father to all your children. Bless, we pray, all earthly fathers, all parents. Strengthen them to nurture, protect, and guide the children entrusted to their care. Instill within them the virtues of love and patience. May they be slow to anger and quick to forgive. And through the ministration of your Holy Spirit, may all parents be strong and steadfast examples of faithfulness, responsibility, and loving kindness through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.